Today's episode is brought to you by Freed Hardeman University. Are you a local minister? And these days, do you feel like you refer more and more members of your congregation to an outside agency or counselor? Do you feel like you would like to have the tools to be able to help some of those folks right there in your own office? Well, why don't you think about enrolling in the Master of Arts in Pastoral Care and Counseling program at Freed Hardeman University? This degree will give you the psychological and spiritual expertise to provide care and counseling from within your ministry context. You'll take courses in things like grief counseling, premarital counseling, suffering, and the human condition, psychopathology, and more. Maybe you have questions or maybe you have doubts about whether you can handle grad school. Well, Freed Hardeman can help, whether you're wondering about the cost or the time it will take to earn your master's degree. Here's a little good news to encourage you to keep exploring. You can complete the entire program online. And yes, scholarships are available even for you. So if you're a minister looking for more ways to care for the members of your congregation and their neighbors, or you know a minister like that, why not have a look at the Master of Arts in Pastoral Care and Counseling at Freed Hardeman University? Go to fhu.edu slash chronicle to learn more. That's fhu.edu slash chronicle, or click the link in the show notes. Freed Hardeman University, Master of Pastoral Care and Counseling, fhu.edu slash chronicle. Now, on with the show the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And God takes care of, of the needs that you have in your life for fulfillment, friendship, intimacy. Our churches have to be welcoming but non-affirming to people from all kinds of backgrounds so that the church really is a Christ-focused place where acceptance with accountability, not simply acceptance to affirm, but acceptance with accountability to truth and nurture into spiritual health can take place. That's the goal every church must set for itself and begin to live. We're not centers to dispense judgment. We are centers to dispense grace within the context of the truth of the gospel. Welcome to the Christian Chronicle podcast. We're bringing you the stories that are shaping Church of Christ congregations and members around the world. Here's our host, B.T. Irwin. Family and friends, neighbors, and most of all strangers, welcome to the Christian Chronicle podcast. May what you are about to hear bless you and honor God. We disagree about plenty of things, don't we? That's life. Always has been. What else is new? But one thing on which I think most of us can agree, the world is changing. And nowhere do people feel that change more than in the church. Over my lifetime, it seems the culture in the church and the culture in society are quickly moving in different directions. And nobody in the church can be blamed for how that stirs up feelings of anxiety, confusion, distress, grief, and yes, anger. What happens in the places where church culture meets popular culture? Our children go to schools that often reflect that popular culture and teach its beliefs and values. We hear it in popular music and see it on our screens. We encounter it in our workplaces, and more and more often these days, popular culture comes right into the church itself. Few changes in popular culture over the last few years made the church flinch more than the fast acceptance of the LGBTQ plus community and lifestyle. And don't think that that acceptance happened only outside the church. Pew Research reports that those who claim to be Christians in the United States are about three times more accepting of same-sex marriage and relationships now than they were 20 years ago. Today, that's about one in three members of churches that are not Catholic or mainline Protestant. 
Now, at this point, even members of the most conservative congregations in rural areas and small towns are likely to be related to or know someone who identifies as LGBTQ+. But this is enough to make heads spin on Christian parents, preachers, professors, and teachers. How are we to respond? What are we to do? Some hold a hardline and a punitive posture toward LGBTQ plus persons, while others are softening their stance, finding new ways to interpret the Bible to be more accommodating, if not accepting, of same-sex relationships. The Christian Chronicle has not avoided the subject. In the show notes, we'll post a link to a full archive of our coverage of how the Church of Christ community is responding to the rise of the LGBTQ plus community and lifestyle. In this episode, we're pleased to bring you a Bible scholar and teacher whose career in congregations and university classrooms goes back more than 50 years. Dr. Rubel Shelley is the author of dozens of books that dig deep into the Bible to expose and present its teaching on many subjects that are hot topics, both in the church and in society at large. And he recently published his latest book to examine same-sex attraction and relationships through the lens of deep and scholarly biblical research. That book, Male and Female, God Created Them, a biblical review of LGBTQ plus claims, is available now from College Press, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Rubel, thank you for joining us. Honored to be with you, Brad. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Okay, well, let's start with the obvious question. Uh, Salman Rushdie said that books choose their authors, and if you believe that to be true, why did this book choose you, and why now? Yeah, I, I get the point of that quote. Well, first, I'm a teacher. And if you are a teacher, uh, certainly in academic circles where you're interacting with um, 18 to 25, 30-year-olds constantly, this subject is on the floor and mm. on people's minds. And if you're active in the life of a church and you're interactive at all with the community, it is a matter of concern. So the subject is on the table. And as a teacher, and as someone you mentioned who has in the past, spoken and written to subjects where I think there is an uncertain sound being articulated, not just in our own fellowship, but in conservative community generally. Um, I've felt some degree of responsibility to study it through first for my own sake, because maybe I've been wrong. Maybe I've assumed some things. Maybe I've inherited some things. So I went back to restudy and I've read far more from the affirming side, the, the opposite side, from the view that's called the traditional view. But um, th there's just not a convincing case to be made for moving away from what Christians have understood for, well, let's go back into Judaism, what Jews and Christians have understood, along with Muslims, for 3,500 years. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, a very academic book, as as you told me yourself uh, when we were setting up the interview. Uh, it's 403 pages, uh, including appendices. And um, out of everything I've ever read on the subject, I think it's the most thorough biblical exegesis and uh, historical critical analysis on the subject of same-sex relationships. So uh, well, thanks, let, let me just insert. Yes. It, it really is designed to be a resource book. Mm -hmm. Because I've been fortunate over the course of my academic career to be able to uh, be deeply involved in both historical studies. I'm, I'm a philosopher. And so uh, the first time someone said, well, don't you know that in Greek culture, Greek literature, this, well, wait a minute, that's something with which I'm familiar. Mm -hmm. So I know some history. 
I know I know Greek philosophy, wrote my dissertation in issues in Plato. Uh, I know biblical languages and, of course, biblical text. So that book really is designed not to be the kind of thing you sit down as a page turner to be engrossed in reading or to meet the subject matter. It's a resource book for academics, for teachers, for preachers. I'm just finished uh, the first draft and am now editing. It should be available around the first of the year. A very short book, 80 to 100 pages, probably. My working title, don't hold me to this, it may not wind up being the finished title of the book, is The Ink is Dry. It's only six chapters long. And it is a, I would call it a, a an overview. It, it's the Reader's Digest condensed version of of this controversy and the core matters that I think need to be raised. So the big book is a really is a resource book for people who who don't have um, access to all of the historical, philosophical, linguistic things that that are part of this. But there's a shorter book coming very soon that will be more for the general reader. It's also being set up for use uh, with some uh, study questions for maybe small group study uh, or even a family to use Mm. where this is an internal topic to a child dealing with gender dysphoria or a family group trying to understand someone in their family who's presenting with issues along these subject matters. So if you can take a 400, uh, 400 page scholarly book, which it's, it is very thorough and very good. Uh, it was a page turner for me, but I'm a nerd like that. <laughs> if you can take, if you can take a 400 day, uh, page scholarly book and turn it into an 80 to a hundred page, uh, book for the general audience. Uh, I know some editors at the Christian Chronicle that might like to, to, to hire you for a second. <laughs> let's see if you can, let's see if you can do this, uh, in say five minutes, uh, or less, can you uh, can you present the thesis of your book and some of the supporting points? Yeah, I I think I can do that. Very often in the literature that I've seen, people who hold a traditional view write, they have started with uh, the limiting texts or the commandments that forbid certain behaviors. I don't think that's the right place to begin. Hmm. Uh, I begin with Genesis 1 and 2. For 3,500 years, as I've already indicated, Jews and then Christians, Christianity born out of the womb of Judaism, have had a view of creation so that created as human beings, we understand our sexual natures as males and females together created, mutually created in God's own image presented in Genesis as being brought together by God to be one flesh. And the Bible is in those opening chapters laying the groundwork for everything that we're supposed to understand about our personhood in relation to human sexuality. As proof of that, I would jump to the Gospels. In Matthew 19, when Jesus is asked a question about marriage and divorce and what that implies about sexual partnership, He says, well, haven't you read that back in the beginning, God created the male and female and said this? So there's something about Genesis that in that narrative, Jesus saw as laying out the groundwork for how human relationships work in terms of marriage, sexuality, reproducing the race, etc. 
Number one, there's a positive view of human sexuality there. Um, there's nothing um, embarrassing. There, there's nothing shameful. God brings them together. They are naked. They are brought together to become one flesh. They will fulfill the mission that God has outlined, that they will um, be fruitful. They will multiply, that they will perpetuate the race and then join with him in the wise uh, use and governance of the creation he's given them. And second, in that Genesis account, there is, when the woman is created and brought to the man, certainly commonality. Adam had seen the animals brought before him. But now he says, ah, finally, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But he also immediately sees not just commonality, but difference. Hmm. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And this is one of the few places where from Hebrew to English, uh, a word play actually comes through. Man, woman, uh, in Hebrew, ish, isha. There is commonality. We are not mere animals, but there's difference. As humans in the image of God, we are male and female. And now, for this reason, they are brought together to be one flesh, and that unquestionably involves sexual differentiation. So maleness and masculinity or femaleness and femininity are integral to personhood, and creation is not just a sort of disposable backdrop to the lives of human beings. Um, we are, in fact, to see ourselves in that light. And later, when there are prohibitions about adultery, about fornication, about same-sex relationships, gay or lesbian, these are not freestanding. They are guardrails designed to protect what is fundamental, and that is marriage and pure sexuality, one flesh identity with male and female in marriage. So there's the, I don't know, did I make five minutes? There's the down and dirty summary of what I understand the Bible to be saying. And it's not about clobber texts. That's that's mm -hmm. a rhetorical device designed to sort of make people defensive. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't clobber people. The Bible is about the love of God for human beings made in his image and likeness and how we're supposed to relate. And narrative sets the tone, commandments later protect and set guardrails. You uh, you talked about how uh, most people start out uh, maybe with those clobber texts. Yeah, with the and, negatives. Yeah, yeah, with the negatives. And, and you go all the way back to Genesis uh, chapter one. Um, you, I think you, that's the right place to start. That's, yeah. that's where we begin to see first God and now who are we? We are not independent free creatures who've somehow evolved into being. We're here by the direct intent and purpose of God created in his image and accountable to him to live within the context he has created for us. Hmm. I, I, I want to talk about a, a couple of those. You, you spent a lot of pages addressing um, the uh, Levitical holiness codes. Yeah. And uh, the Apostle Paul's prohibition against uh, same sex uh, intercourse, same sex yeah. relationships and the counter that I guess you might call it the negative uh, 
people these days, uh, even biblical uh, scholars, and you cite several of them in your book, uh, talk about those commands, those holiness commands uh, being uh, more um, the, the culture. Uh, they talk a lot about the culture at the time that they were written. Uh, that would have been uh, time-bound, getting, limited yeah, time-bound not relevant to people in a modern Correct. environment. That's yeah. the argument yeah. you hear a lot. And you spent a lot of pages writing about that. So uh, share with us uh, how you've responded to those arguments. Yeah, I, I think that's that's critical. I mean, I get somebody's uncertainty reading through that big block of material. Basically, it's what Leviticus chapters 17 through 26, Leviticus title of the book. It's holiness information for the priesthood and how the priests operate and what the priests are to teach the people about holiness. Holiness, bear in mind, means set apartness. As Israel is going into its promised land, displacing the Canaanites against whom the wrath of God has come because of various sins, one of which specified in the text is their same-sex involvement with each other and their departure from God's view of marriage. As they go into the land, God says, when you get there, not only must you not adopt the practices of the people who are being displaced, do that and I'll displace you. You must, in fact, be holy to the Lord. And that is a recurring theme uh, in Leviticus as well as in the Bible, but especially in Leviticus. Be holy because I'm holy. Be set apart to me because I'm set apart from all that's evil or dark. And so in that holiness code, you have two different things going on. And the failure to distinguish the two is what creates the confusion. Hmm. Some of the things are distinctly uh, are distinctly cultic to their identity as a set apart people, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites through whom the Messiah will come. And most of those distinctives, at least a great many of them, if not most of them, center around uh, blood. Uh, Leviticus 1711, um, I've given you sacrifice and I've given you the life that's in the blood for sacrifice and that blood is holy. And so blood is holy and all of the things that relate to blood, whether it's the the way an animal is to be killed that will be eaten, kosher, uh, the way an animal will be killed if it's to be sacrificed, or for that matter, uh, the touching of human blood. If you have a wound and you bleed, or uh, a woman during her menstrual period, uh, there to abstain from sexual contact. Blood is sacred. Those are cultic differentiations. There are also a number of them in there that people find weird. One about tattoos. Well, in Canaan, uh, we know that tattoos were markers of devotion to different deities, to different pagan gods. God says, don't have any of those marks on you. You be set apart to me. So a number of these are cultic. And most of those cultic deviations, like touching a corpse or touching blood, are resolved this way. Wash yourselves and be clean until evening. Or wash yourselves sometimes and and you're unclean, not morally unclean, but you have violated uh, the sanctity of blood or the sanctity of life, death, uh, for perhaps even as much as a week. There are others, though, and these are the significant ones. Um, these are the ones that have to do with loving your neighbor as you love yourself. All of us like to quote that one in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So surely the holiness code is not altogether irrelevant. 
Uh, the ones about adultery, oh, well, I, I think that one, most Christian ethicists, even the affirming scholars that I quote, they'd say, well, of course, we're supposed to respect that one. Why? Because those are not bound up into the cultic life of Israel, setting them apart from the nations around the messianic promise, uh, sacrifice and blood that will be fulfilled in Jesus. These are things that are rooted in the very nature of God, his holiness, his purity, his truthfulness, and they're generally issues of relationship. And so when it comes to marriage, marriage is protected in various ways. Um, you can't uh, you can't have sex with uh, uh, a child, a sister, uh, incest, animals. You, you can't have sex with someone of the same sex, uh, a man with a woman. Yeah, well, there's no prohibition back there about women with women. All laws until very modern times were stated in terms of he shall or he must, even in the New Testament. Um, uh, he that does this or that. It doesn't exclude women. The assumption is uh, same-sex relationships are unholy because they are violations of what marriage was meant to be. Okay, bottom line on that one. The distinction between the cultic violations um, would be, okay, if, if I cross one of those barriers, it's not a, a, a sin, but it, it's a cultic violation. So you wash, you're unclean, it's for 24 hours, it's for seven days. But what about violating the moral commandments? Usually one of two penalties. One would be exclusion from the Jewish community, just banishment from the land and banishment from the life of the people. And the other is death. The most serious ones are the ones that in Israel were to be punished by death. That's not touching blood. It's not touching a corpse, those cultic uh, issues. They're the issues that violate in some way the very holiness of God himself. The moral commandments have to be the same in Old and New Testament because God is the same mm. yesterday, today, and forever. And if in the holiness code of Leviticus, which Jesus, by the way, endorses in Matthew 5, uh, and he says, not only are you not to break those commandments, don't you teach anybody else that they are okay to break those commandments or you come under judgment. The holiness code that has to do with fundamental moral violations are punished. Yeah, well, they're in the Old Testament and, and we're New Testament people. We're New Testament church. Um, actually, the Bible is one book. It's not two. It's, it's the story of God working through the Israelites to bring the Messiah, who then becomes the redeemer of the whole world. And the parts of the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus are made fairly plain in the New Testament. Jesus says, you don't have to worry about kosher foods anymore. It's no longer a cultic deviation if you eat pork, for example. It's not what you put in your mouth. It's what's going to come out of your mouth that would be defiling now. Um, but at the same time, he reestablishes the moral parameters in that same Sermon on the Mount and speaks to these very things that in the Old Testament were violations of God's own holiness and nature as a God who will not make peace with sin. What about the um, 
uh, when you're talking about cultic violations, you cited several uh, biblical scholars in your book that uh, made the case that the prohibition against same-sex intercourse, uh, both in Leviticus and in Paul's uh, epistles, was cultic. Uh, in other words, uh, they would associate that with cultic rituals um, in Mesopotamia and the Greco-Roman world. And um, you countered that argument in your book. Yeah, it's it's true that it was part of Israel's requirement to avoid same-sex relationships, but not as a strictly cultic matter, hmm. because this is... Um, explained through Moses as this is why God is punishing the Canaanites. So it's not that only the Jews were accountable to this. Everybody was accountable to this. And the fact that these pagans were living this way, violating God's own personal holiness, not not by touching corpses, not by eating non-kosher food, but by violating something so fundamental as the creation order of male-female sexuality. God says, I'm destroying them and pushing them out of the land. I'm, I'm taking not only their land, but in many cases, I'm taking their lives and your lives go on the line if you violate those. Because here are the cultic provisions, and here are the universal moral provisions that all human beings are accountable to. Let me ask you the maybe the same question a little bit different because uh, I can hear some uh, listeners maybe thinking it through this way. You know, when Jesus, um, when the disciples of Jesus didn't wash their hands before they ate, uh, mm-hmm. or when they were plucking grain on the Sabbath, and uh, people look at that and they say, you know, the God of the Old Testament had a lot of rules. Uh, Jesus fulfilled the law, and now love is the rule, and so. Uh, we see Jesus not holding his disciples to a lot of those holiness standards that, you know, certainly washing hands or plucking grain on the Sabbath isn't a a blood issue. Uh, And so the, the logic goes, you know, maybe, maybe Jesus would be more accepting of this uh, because obviously he let his disciples, I'll use the word slide on some other commands. Yeah. I think, I think we hear that in, in various ways that, Somehow, all of a sudden, um, God became a Christian uh, <laughs> after after the Calvary experience of Jesus' death and resurrection. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we misread the Old Testament terribly, as many of us do, uh, we're even trained to do, as a, as a God who's angry and who's out to get people. Go back and read the Old Testament. God is love and the commandment that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are quotes out of the Old Testament. Those are not new revelation in the New. And in the New Testament, as Jesus doesn't, quote, uh, become a softy, but he does identify to his disciples, look, there are things, for example, about the Sabbath, and, and that's where the rubbing of grain and, and the doing of other things uh, came up in his ministry. There are things about the Sabbath that were exclusive to, distinctive for Israel because of the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath commandment, by the way, the Fourth Commandment, it isn't brought forward in, into the New Testament. Uh, 
all of those other commandments that relate to morality, murder, adultery, lying, um, stealing, those are in fact either repeated. I don't really like to use that language. I just like to say they're constants across time because God is the same God. Lying is wrong, not because there's commandment against it, but because God is truth. Uh, Adultery, breaking your promises is wrong, not because there's a command against it, but because God is faithful in all of his doings, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the moral commandments, Jesus never once slapped on those. When in Matthew 19, the, the Pharisees came to him with this question about marriage and divorce, he said, yeah, love is still the rule, but don't you remember that from the beginning, he made them this way, therefore, hmm. Um, you don't separate what God has joined together. And except in certain extreme cases, mentions the case of fornication, for you to break those marriage covenants still violates not one of the Ten Commandments, but violates the holiness of God and is adultery. I uh, This is a, whenever I know I have, a conversation like this coming up, I talk to my very eclectic group of friends, uh, so I I can get a lot of different. God bless you for having an eclectic group of friends. <laughs> I I do it on purpose. I have a very eclectic group of friends. More and, Christians um, should, yeah. And uh, and so in conversations with them before a conversation like this, when I get to hear a lot of questions that they would ask sure. and thoughts that they have, and I heard a new one. Uh, I don't think you really address it in your in your book, but. Uh, this one goes when God told Abraham that all nations on earth would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. Um, that literally meant Abraham's uh, seed, right? And so uh, there was this sense that um, that keeping uh, keeping Israel pure um, was really important because of its understanding that all nations will be blessed through us. Uh, the Messiah would come through Abraham's seed. And uh, so uh, things like uh, prostitution, uh, same-sex intercourse, um, adultery, uh, onanism, <laughs> we'll go there, um, were sinful because it was wasting the seed. Um, and, um, you know, to quote Monty Python, every sperm is sacred. Um, and, and so the, the, the point this person made or the question they asked is, um, uh, first of all, because uh, Jesus said that God could raise up children for Abraham from these stones. And uh, Paul in his letter to the Romans made the case that, you know, uh, those who are not born as natural descendants of Abraham could be descendants of Abraham. There's a spiritual, um, they could be spiritual descendants of Abraham. And then in light of overpopulation and exhausting the earth's resources, can God not, uh, can God not bless and sanctify uh, same sex marriage because, um, you know, that, that, uh, uh, they would ask the question better that, that things have changed, uh, since the new Testament, we understand that Abraham's descendants are spiritual descendants, not necessarily biological descendants. And, uh, so, um, I, I'd never heard that before. Well, you, you're right. I, I didn't touch that in the book because until you've raised it, I never <laughs> so, heard that one either. Um, I, I I don't mean to uh, offend your eclectic friends, but sometimes you hear things that you just think, hmm, 
there's a conclusion in search of some proof. Um, <laughs> and here, here's one of, I, I think, very many um, approaches that uh, affirming revisionist scholars uh, might try. Because with the conclusion in hand, look, uh, the, the culture wars have been won. Um, same-sex marriage, gay and lesbian uh, relationships, um, trans persons, uh, queer doctrine as, as uh, university courses. The, that train has left the station. The church has to catch up. Hmm. So we've got to find a way uh, to work uh, to, to legitimate that. Um, I'm, I'm going to come back specifically to, to your question about the, the seed and perhaps overpopulation issue. But I, I find it very refreshing, for example, that someone like Luke Timothy Johnson, who is uh, a scholar at Emory University, uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, who is Roman Catholic and at least by uh, tradition uh, should be um, opposed to same-sex marriage, he he's changed his view and he is uh, affirming of same-sex relationships. But he's he's very candid in a way that I wish more people would be. Um, he wrote in Commonweal magazine, and I've, I've reached for uh, the article while I was giving myself a little lead time there. Uh, let me just read what Luke Timothy Johnson says uh, uh, on my view, Rubel's view. Um, scholarship breaks down and scholarship is set aside when our subjectivism is allowed to overrule the hard data or another way to put it, when we have a conclusion. I have to legitimate that. So now I'm in search of an argument for it. This is what Johnson says, not what Rubel says. Quote, some Christian, uh, I'm sorry, I have little patience with efforts to make scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says, hmm. but what are we to do with what the text says? He continues, I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is, in fact, the way in which God created us. By doing that, we explicitly reject as well the premises of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality, namely that it's a vice freely chosen, a symptom of human corruption, disobedience to God's created order. Close quote. Now, that's a long quote, but it, uh, I, I think it's an important quote because it's from somebody who's on the opposite side of the net in, in this tennis match or whatever we want to call it. That's not about a boxing match. I, I, I'm not a confidant and personal friend of Luke Timothy Johnson, but he and I have met. We have talked about this issue. We've talked about it privately. We, we even had a public exchange about it. Very cordial, very respectful. But 
I'm grateful that he's willing to say, okay, what the text says is clear. And the singing and dancing that some people do to say, well, it doesn't really mean what it appears to mean. Uh, he said, that, that's just, that that doesn't work. He said, we might as well just be honest and say, we believe our experience that in the 21st century, uh, psychology, the soft sciences, sociology, and so on, our experience um, is is weightier than what that ancient text says. Well, while I appreciate the candor and the honesty of it, I, I disagree with it. Because if God is who he's presented to be in Scripture, God knows the end from the beginning. God did not um, have to learn what psychology of the last 50 to 70 years has decided by changing its classification of same-sex relationships as the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, that they changed those from disorders prior to the 1970s, maybe 1973 or so, to an alternate lifestyle. Changing of that in um, a human category does not change what the Bible says. Now, b- back to the argument you said you heard your friend offering about seed. Um, never heard it, so let me I'll just try to think out loud about it. Yeah, uh, in the beginning, the seed of Abraham uh, clearly is the, the, the Jewish community, the, the race that will emerge from Abraham that will become uh, a covenant community under Moses and the giving of, of the Torah. But as in the book of Isaiah, when you work through, say, the servant songs in Isaiah, the servant of God clearly at the beginning of the servant songs is the nation of Israel. But Isaiah laments the fact of how far away from the holiness of God the Israelites have come. They were meant to be a light to the nations. As it turned out, they had become more chameleons. They had taken on the colors of the nations. And so as the servant songs continue, the servant of God is no longer the whole nation because the whole nation is corrupt in many ways, priests and government officials. It's a remnant. Maybe there's a righteous remnant, Isaiah says, until finally he comes uh, at the end of chapter 52 and into chapter 53. The seed is no longer, you know, this unlimited number of descendants of Abraham as, as multiple as the stars of the heaven, the sands of, on the ocean beach. It's one person. And Paul picks up that theme in Galatians. Uh, that the seed now is not the nation. It's the individual who has come through the nation. So the issue of seed there is is both literal uh, and, and metaphorical, but it, it's not sperm. Um, it's, it's a nation. It's a covenant community under the Torah. It's finally Jesus. And it doesn't have anything to do with the issue of population control so that Oh, back in Genesis or back in the days when the earth was sparsely populated, God wanted people having lots and lots of children. Be fruitful and multiply is the generic duty of the human race, not unlike the generic duty of cattle, horses, and dogs. That's how you keep 
the species alive, be fruitful and multiply is the generic duty of the race, not the personal duty of every individual in the race. So I don't think it works as an argument for non-reproductive sex. Hmm. If it does, it works for unmarried sex, say, between a 24-year-old man and a postmenopausal woman. If the issue is um, sex must must be procreative to be legitimate in the Genesis narrative, that's not true. That That's the generic thing. Uh, so if we get the generative out, the, the reproductive out, no, no, no. It would certainly prohibit birth control. Hmm. Uh, Would it require infertile couples uh, to adopt? The biblical prohibitions are for the protection of marriage and family life. And the prohibition of, to use the Greek word that that Paul uses, that Jesus uses, porneia. Porneia is any illicit sex. It's any sex outside one man, one woman, in one union for one life. The biblical prohibitions of fornication, porneia, sexual immorality are all rooted in that sanctity of marriage argument out of Genesis 1 and 2, not a reproductive duty argument. And so scripture affirms the value of being single as well as being married is a point that I think we should make. And the person who is same-sex oriented is in no different position than the person who's opposite sex oriented, but who may choose or for some reason beyond his or her control, uh, just not finding that person, that person not being a part of their social matrix. They live a single life. A person does not have to commit to celibacy, but a person does have to commit to chastity and to purity. And the family that many a single person um many a divorced person, many a widowed person has, is not to find a sexual partner, but to be part of the family of God, a a local church. And and that's Jesus out of Matthew 12. Um, He's preaching one day and somebody comes in and says, hey, your mom and your brothers are out here and they want to talk to you. And not to be disrespectful to them, but Jesus is, is teaching about the kingdom of God to these people. And his response is not to say, okay, we're going to take a two-hour break so I can go meet with my family. This is his response. He says, who are my brothers and who are my sisters? It's those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And he continued the sermon. So his biological family was part of that larger family, but it's the larger family in which we find our identity now in Christ. Uh, Marriage is not a right to be claimed any more than good health or prosperity and long life. And marriage is certainly not the cure for loneliness. Ask a lot of married people I know uh, who despair of loneliness within being married. The idea seems to presume that the point of marriage is is romantic companionship, the abridgment of loneliness, uh, tax breaks with the IRS. No, no, no. (laughs) Those may be ancillary benefits to being married but they're not the meaning of marriage. Marriage is a one flesh union, not of already sane people, males and females, but of diverse, different gender sexes, male and female. Under God, procreation is possible, perhaps even likely. It's not necessary for marriage to exist. And simply to have a relationship with procreation taken out 
uh, is not something that is sanctified as marriage anywhere in Scripture. There's simply no case to be made for it. Well, I want to um, the the scholars and the deep thinkers are really enjoying this, but I want to get I want to get to some practical questions here because well, I thought those were really practical. Questions. I agree. Go I ahead. agree. Uh, I'm ahead. with Go you. Ahead. We could we could do this all day. Um, but it, you said the book is written as a resource, and so uh, here on the back end of our conversation, uh, let me just ask you a few questions uh, for those people and congregations out there: parents, uh, teachers, ministers, elders. Uh, who, uh, as you said, the train has left the station. And so our popular culture has in moved. the culture. Yeah, surely has. Uh, and, and it's, it's in the, it's, it's confronting people in our congregations yeah. now. Yeah. So, um, let me start with this question. Uh, your book introduced me to a phrase I've never heard before, uh, in reference to, uh, Christian congregations. And that phrase is welcoming, but not affirming. Yeah. Um, Yep. You know, is that just a nicer way of saying hate the sin, love the sinner? Uh, how can congregations really be welcoming of people who identify as LGBTQ plus without affirming their behaviors? Oh, yeah, uh, I, I can answer that one. Uh, let me uh, let, let me do it first by analogy. Um, I welcome my friends who are alcoholics. Uh, I welcome my friend, who, my friends who are drug addicts. I welcome uh, my friends who uh, have addictions of various sorts. In fact, a church that I served for 27 years here in Nashville, at one point we had 41 every week. We had 41 groups, accountability, um, reorientation sessions going for people with all sorts of addictions, most of them around alcohol and drugs, we welcomed every one of them, but not in a single case did we ever affirm the addiction, the alcoholism, the, the meth, uh, the gambling, whatever it was that was their addiction. We welcomed them because that's what the church is. The church is a recovering community of sinners. Now, some sins, frankly, are more socially acceptable than others. Some of the sins that we dealt with in those recovery sessions had to do with sex. We actually had some guys come to the elders wanting to begin a support and recovery group for men who were struggling with pornography as they were. We did, and we pretty soon had to split it into two groups. It became so large. Here's my point. If a church creates an atmosphere of redemption through the grace of God, people, I don't know that we ever become comfortable, but we feel safe to admit, yes, I do need redemption. And I must throw myself on the grace of God for my gambling addiction, my alcohol addiction, uh, my pathological lying, whatever it may be. And that church welcomes them not to encourage them to continue the behavior, but they are welcomed into a penitent community where there is acceptance, accountability, and nurture into spiritual health and recovery. Okay, let's follow that through with sexual issues in particular. Let's, let's talk about the, the, the teenager who is um, caught up in what now has a name, gender dysphoria, some degree of 
discomfort as a man that I, I seem to have certain feelings that my culture says are effeminate or a woman that people are calling me butch because I'm into athletics or this. That's It has a name now, but it's an old phenomenon. Men have cooked and done needlework a long time. Uh, women have, have been, you know, truck drivers and, and farmers. The gender dysphoria is is one set of issues. But let's suppose a teenager is dealing with what this culture is telling them. Uh, you may need to consider puberty blockers. Uh, you, you may you mm. may need to consider um, dressing differently. You may need to consider surgery and changing your genitalia because you're probably a woman trapped in a man's body or vice versa. Most teenagers, if they feel those things, don't have a safe place to go to deal with it. Suppose that I as a preacher or I as a youth minister or I as a mature elder in a church or, or, or a woman who's respected in this church as somebody that can keep a confidence. Suppose I can go to that person and say, I, I'm, I'm being torn apart with doubts and questions and so on. Why would we not, rather than responding with harshness, a judgmental spirit. Well, if you feel that way, you, you don't belong here. Mm. No, if you feel that way, this is the one place you do belong and you can confide in me and, and we will pray together. And yeah, we'll, we'll look at scripture. We might even look at some things in Rubel Shelley's book, we, but, but I, I'm going to love you to spiritual help in Christ, but I can't affirm you in doing something that I know is against the will of Christ for your spiritual health. Um, this to me is not theoretical. Um, you've already let the cat out of the bag in the introduction that I'm an old guy. Back in the 1980s, the early 1980s, um, one of the elders of that church and I, because there was this new disease that was given a name in the late 70s, early 80s called AIDS. Today, we more nearly talk about HIV infection. Um, and people were scared to death. Um, I had people asking me, do you think it's safe to drink from a water fountain at church? What if somebody with AIDS drinks from the water fountain? A neighbor uh, <clears throat> warned my wife against going to a laundromat with some of the big bedding that she was going to dry in one of the big dryers. But how do you know somebody with, as she put it, the AIDS hasn't been there and, and you could catch it? People were terrified. So what um, Dr. Hamley and I did was to set up um, an accountability group, not for alcoholics or drug users or people caught up with gambling or pornography, but for people who were HIV infected. We didn't know if anybody would show up. But we had established a, a community of grace and healing. And sure enough, I don't remember exactly how many, probably four or five the first night we met showed up. And before long, the group grew large enough that we had to divide it into two different groups. We welcomed people who had AIDS. We welcomed people who were gay um, not all of them were gay, but but most of them were. We welcomed people who were gay into the context of 
the call of Christ to purity and repentance. And the group was helpful because, number one, it was a safe place. I I can confide my sense of uh, orientation, same-sex orientation. That language wasn't being used then, but it is today. I can tell people that I feel things that I don't know what to do with. I can even confess to people I've done things that um, I know the Bible says I shouldn't be doing. And the group becomes a place of understanding and support, never of affirmation. Well, okay. I mean, uh, you know, some of us feel the same thing. So let's get on with it. it. It was like an AA group. Everybody's welcome to AA, not so that we can have open bar, but so we can encourage one another to stay out of bars, not to drink because it's killing us. Same thing about this language. It's not original with me welcoming, but non-affirming. But we're going to have to have more churches where there is a community where, number one, the truth is taught. Pulpits and public statements on this subject are getting few and far between because the culture is is encroaching uh, on the church so much. We still have to say what the Bible says about what's right and wrong. But number two, we have to say that not in a bash you over the head judgmental spirit, but with a spirit that says, and if your struggle is alcohol, if your struggle is gambling, or if your struggle is same-sex attraction, here are people, and here are support groups, and here are resources to help you sort through that, figure it out, what is right, what is wrong, and this church becomes your larger family to support you to spiritual health. Um, a lot of people who are single uh, feel like fifth wheels in churches mm-hmm. because so many things are mom, dad, and the kids. And I'm not opposed to that. We need things for mom, dad, and the kids. But we need to remember that a lot of churches have 15 to 25 percent of their membership single, either never married or, or widowed or divorced. Uh, we can't continue to so idolize, and idolatry is one of the things Paul talks about in Romans 1, we can't so idolize marriage and family that we make singles, non-married people, feel that they have to find friendship, intimacy, sex, which our culture equates all of those. Uh, We have to find that uh, among ourselves. Well, what about just being part of the larger family of God as we're all going to be in eternity uh, so that we find our identity in Christ and we find our, our fellowship and joy in having safe people, loving people with whom we can interact with integrity. And Brad, I, I, I just used a word that in using it, it, it triggered a thought. I think most of the people that I have counseled and worked with. And by the way, this for me goes back into uh, at least the late 60s and early 70s that the the first person who ever came to me saying, I don't know what to do with these feelings and some things that I've already done that were same sex things. So that this is not new territory for me. This is not this is not abstract and academic. This is also pastoral for me. But the word that, that triggered the thought a moment ago, I used the word intimacy. I think what most of us, and especially here, I'll I'll refer to single people. Um, I think what people are looking for is not so much 
sex as intimacy. Hmm. And by intimacy, safe people, safe places, acceptance, uh, love, where, where love is, is defined in the Christian sense. It's the self-giving interest in one another. Um, and yet in this culture, we don't know how to do intimacy apart from groping or, or viewing or having intercourse with a woman, a man, or both, or a group. Intimacy doesn't mean having sex. Intimacy means having a deep, meaningful connection within this male-female community that God has created as the human race in his own image and likeness. And in that context, serving the kingdom of God. The point of life is not to have sex. The point of life is not romantic fulfillment. The point of life, if, if we are a Christian, is the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And God takes care of, of the needs that you have in your life for fulfillment, friendship, intimacy. Our churches have to be welcoming but non-affirming to people from all kinds of backgrounds so that the church really is a Christ-focused place where acceptance with accountability, not simply acceptance to affirm, but acceptance with accountability to truth and nurture into spiritual health can take place. That's the goal every church must set for itself and begin to live. We're not centers to dispense judgment. We are centers to dispense grace within the context of the truth of the gospel. Let me ask you, I got three more questions. I really want to get these in. And and the first, I have a friend who's not a member of the Church of Christ, uh, but listens to the podcast. And we were talking the other day uh, about this interview uh, coming up. And uh, she she asked me, and, and you've talked again about that train leaving the station and where yeah. our culture has, has gone on this subject. Uh, she asked me if I... Uh, am concerned at all about platforming hate by uh, having you on the show. And uh, sh- she could have either meant that your interpretation of the Bible is hateful or that uh, even if your interpretation of the Bible is not hateful, your speaking out and writing on this subject the way you have uh, could encourage bigotry and hatred among Christians. So I'm pretty sure she's listening to this episode right now. Well, Brad, so, some people have spoken as, quote, representatives of the Christian community, and they have been hateful. Yeah, They've been homophobic. They've been bigoted. They've been angry. They've been mean and ugly. I, I hope your friend doesn't hear in my voice meanness and intolerance. In fact, uh, I've just done this little appeal for churches to be places of loving acceptance, to be a grace-filled community. No, we can't affirm things that the Bible says are wrong. I can't affirm adultery. I can't affirm stealing. I can't affirm lying. I can't affirm same-sex relationships. Why? Not because I'm looking to be mean and to go out and clobber somebody, but because I'm a Christian. And to say that I'm a Christian minimally means I subject myself, and this is what the word disciple, which relates to discipline, I subject myself as a disciple to the discipline 
of the teaching of Christ as it is given to me in Scripture. The, the ink is dry in Scripture. Scripture says these behaviors are wrong and they do not promote the kingdom of God. I, 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 I think it's unfair for me to be judged bigoted and hateful simply because I say, I still believe we have to respect Scripture. If we don't respect it here, um, do we give up then on lying? Do we give up on stealing? Do we give up on adultery? Um, if, if we are disciples at all, the discipline of Christ must relate to the way we live. I've been an advocate for the protection of gay people. Um, and my, I think it was, it was in the early 2000s, 2002, three, four, somewhere in there, Fred Phelps, um, you know, the, forgive me for using the term here, going with this signs, God hates fags. He, he, he came to Nashville to, to rally some people. Three of us, a Presbyterian, a Pentecostal, and I, went to the editor of the Nashville Tennessean. And specifically because of the way a certain article with a photograph had been written in the Tennessean, said, we are not identified with that spirit. Yes, we think same-sex behavior is wrong, but we believe hatred is wrong. We believe bigotry is wrong. We believe the kind of animus that this guy is here to stir up is wrong. And she said, well, why don't you write a piece for the paper and I'll publish it? I, I'm the one who wrote the piece, and it was published the next day in the Tennessee. And, and I've already mentioned the 12-step the, the type support groups that we've set up. Uh, even beyond that, we, we formed two seven-member care teams to see people uh, gay people through the last six months of their lives, I did the funerals of a number of gay people um, that, that I didn't know except through those care teams um, during those early days. So to your friend, I don't hate you. Um, I, it, I, I can honestly say I love you in the spirit of Christ saying, love your neighbors as you love yourself. And to say that Scripture teaches this is right, this is wrong, it is, is not hatred. It's, it's simply teaching the discipline of Christ to those people who say we are the followers of Christ. One, one, one distinction here that might help your friend, Brad, I'm, I'm not trying to change what the courts have said, what the laws say about civil rights for gays, about employment and job opportunities and housing. I believe those things are right. Uh, Christians should not be allowed to write the distinctives of Christian ethics into civil laws because the majority of the people out there aren't Christians. And they shouldn't be forced to pray. They shouldn't be forced to live by the ethical standards that, that we're called to. This book and, and my ministry is about what the church must be. The church is an alternative community to the larger culture. And the train has left the station for the culture. What I'm pleading for is, but church, we can't go with culture. We have to stand with Christ because the ink is dry on what scripture says on these things. That's very well put. I um, uh, Next to last question here. A lot of um, you, you, you gave a lot of examples in your book and even in this conversation today uh, near the end of the book, you uh, 
you shared what I believe are two real life stories of people who came to you uh, for uh, counsel. One was, a, a, I believe, a college age woman who was mm-hmm. in a relationship with another mm-hmm. woman. Mm-hmm. She eventually left that. And the other was a young man who had uh, struggled with same sex attraction his whole life, uh, eventually gave into it and left the church. Um, and so a lot of what we've talked about even here today, uh, you've talked about people who are struggling with same sex attraction. Um, there's, it could be implied that a lot of this has to do with younger people, but uh, I want to give you a, a specific situation for my own life. My, uh, wife has a friend, uh, they've been friends uh, for over 30 years and, uh, he's gay. Uh, he's been in a civil union, uh, marriage since that was legal with, uh, the same, uh, partner for 20, 25 years. And they've adopted, uh, nine children and are raising nine children. We get a Christmas card from them every year, uh, with a family portrait. Um, and so, uh, this is a family, uh, that's been together for a, for a very long time, uh, as a, as an elder in the church or as a minister in the church, what do you do if they come to your congregation? Well, I, first, I, I do not believe this is an issue just for, uh, gender dysphoric teenagers. Um, I do not believe it's a new issue. Uh, it's certainly been around since the ancient Greeks and the Romans, as I document in the book. It was it was very public, very, very well known. So it, it's it's not an issue just for teens. And do I want to deny that two men or two women can love each other and and desire a relationship, including a sexual relationship and 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 have good motives about wanting to help children or why should I deny that? I, I have to come back as a disciple to say there are there are people who have left marriages because here's someone that they believe was more spiritual, more godly, more attractive, whatever, and and that they believe they could serve God better in this. The, the question is not my motive or my basic decency, or my love for children. Um, The the question is, but what does the biblical view of marriage, the narrative, and the commandments designed to protect that narrative, what do they call me to? And what is primary in terms of my life commitment? Is it my subjective sentiment of who and what and how I want to live? Or is the issue, I am seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness by walking the life of a disciple. There is not one of us, including moi, who does not, for the sake of following Christ, have to engage in some things that perhaps would not have been natural, I would not have been called to. And certainly I have to disallow and deny myself things that otherwise I'm attracted to. That's the common issue that all of us face who ever declare ourselves to be disciples of Christ. It makes an obligation to follow him rather than to do what I have chosen out of my own natural instincts and predispositions might have been. I think the the follow up question to that is is I can imagine some people right now saying so would you would you uh, recommend that family break up you know uh, I think they're coming at it from the point of view of those nine kids with their their two male parents 
uh, who've been a family unit for a while, would you recommend that they break up? Brad, in, in a pastoral setting, I've actually been in that situation with people who knew they were in a, quote, marriage situation that biblically was disallowed. But I think of one in particular, they had three children. They said, because of our commitment to Christ, we can no longer live together sexually. They lived in separate houses on the same property and parented those children, two of whom became missionaries Hmm. and have served their adult lives uh, advancing the gospel. They saw in their parents such devotion to truth that instead of destroying their lives, because they did it lovingly and with a a clear motivation of living within the love of God, that instead of making them bitter and what atheists, if this means that much to mom and dad, there must be something to this that we need to explore and go into. No, I, I could not say, well, for the sake of children, you do something that compromises your spiritual integrity I would try to help them find a way to live their spiritual integrity that protects the welfare and safety of the children to whom they're, they've made an obligation. Yeah. You know our uh, Church of Christ family uh, pretty well because you've been in it your whole life. And uh, I imagine there are some listeners right now uh, that have, have been uh, squirming because they want to get right down to the, the question that uh, is at the top of mind for a lot of uh, folks in our in our Church of Christ family. And that is... Uh, ruble, same-sex intercourse and marriage, is it a salvation issue? Um, you haven't used that language up to this point, and they want to know, is it a salvation issue or not? Well, I could try to sidestep that and say, well, you know, God decides in the last day. If if we actually believe Scripture, uh, the, the biblical answer to that is found in Paul, but it's it it's it's a nuanced answer. Listen to it. Um, Wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at 9. Wrongdoers is a broad term. Now he's specific. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, sounds to me like Paul says it's a salvation issue, but now watch the tone of grace. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to the spirit of our God. So, yes, it it is a salvation issue in the sense that sin is is never affirmed in Scripture. Sin is always there to be addressed through repentance. And then by the power of God, people are washed and sanctified. And then we've not talked about him and it deserves the next hour. The Holy Spirit becomes the internal dynamic. The gift of God's spirit in this man, in this woman, becomes the empowering agency to live a life that by my bootstraps, by my natural orientation, by what I want to do for my own satisfaction, the Spirit of God enables me to live above myself to be Christ-like. 
uh, one of the most um, offensive arguments for um, any number of behaviors to me, Brad, is I just want to be my authentic self. I don't want to be my authentic self. I want to be Christ-like. Hmm. And my authentic self can get off the rails real easily. I can get angry. I can be selfish. I can be so prideful. I can be hateful and mean. The Spirit of Christ says, but Rubel, that's not who you're called to be. And the Holy Spirit is not in you to foster that. And there are counter traits of generosity and kindness and love. And even as I wrote this book, and there's the one that I'm, I'm about to finish up now. My prayer continually has been, Lord, let me write this book in the spirit that you lived. Um, in fact, the opening part of the book talks about grace and truth. And it talks about the episode of Jesus with a woman caught in sexual sin in John 8. First, he shows grace. He says, guys, put the rocks down. And then he deals with her in truth. When they leave, he says, Dear lady, you've gotten a break today. Now go home and don't sin anymore. In other words, grace and truth. I I want by grace to give people hope, love, kindness, but I cannot give grace without at the same time calling to accountability for myself and them in truth. Things that, that the Bible says are sin, don't do those Grace is for the penitent. Grace is not for the abusers of grace who want to use that word to let them skate on their spiritual responsibility. Hmm. Well, Dr. Rubel Shelley is the author of Male and Female, God Created Them, a biblical review of LGBTQ plus claims. Now available from College Press, Rubel, thank you for doing your homework and then showing us your work on this subject. Before we go, uh, Rubel, we have to take this opportunity uh, to express our compassion and love to you uh, as you're grieving your wife, uh, Myra, uh, who recently went home to be with the Lord. How many years were you married? We were still newlyweds, Brad. We'd only been married 60 years next month. uh, This book was a project that she wanted us to finish together mm. and it was the the tone of love and kindness that she always tried to monitor in anything that I wrote on a subject of controversy and she wanted this to be able to communicate the truth to people but without the mean spirit that we've sometimes seen people exhibit in, in trying to say what we've tried to say what she and I have tried to say with respect for people who disagree. Well, you are in our prayers uh, and our compassion Thanks. and love are with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for letting me be part of the day with you. Listener, don't forget to look for the link to Rubel's book in the show notes. Also, don't forget that in those same show notes, you can now find a complete transcript of this episode. Check it out. We pray that God blessed you through what you heard today. If you received that blessing and you want to pass it on, please pray for this ministry and do a few things. Subscribe to this podcast and then share it with a friend. Recommend and review it on whatever podcast service you use and send us your comments, ideas, and suggestions at podcast at christianchronicle.org. 
And if you feel fuller and richer and wiser because of something you heard today, please pay it forward. Make a tax-deductible gift to The Christian Chronicle. Just click on the link in the show notes or go to christianchronicle.org slash donate to make your gift now. Until next time, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. The Christian Chronicle podcast is a production of the Christian Chronicle Incorporated, informing and inspiring Church of Christ congregations and members around the world since 1943. The Christian Chronicle's associate editor is Audrey Jackson, editor-in-chief Bobby Ross Jr., and president and CEO Eric Trigestad. The Christian Chronicle podcast is produced, written, directed, and hosted by B.T. Irwin and is recorded, edited, and engineered by James Flanagan at Podcast Your Voice Studios in Southfield, Michigan, Detroit, USA.